So welcome to the GUT podcast. I'm Mary McLean, Senior Lecturer and Consultant in Gastroenterology at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, UK, and current visiting research fellow at the National Cancer Institute in the USA. In my capacity as Education Editor, I'm hosting this podcast today. This month, we're discussing the current Editor's Choice manuscript entitled Amniotic Fluid Stem Cells Improve Survival and Enhance Repair of Damaged Intestine in Necrotizing Enterocolitis by a COX-2 dependent mechanism. This is presented by Dr. Paolo Di Copi and colleagues, along with collaborators from Italy and the USA. And I'm delighted to be joined by two of the authors here today, Dr. Paolo Di Copi and Dr. Simon Eaton, both from the surgery unit in the University College London Institute of Child Health in the UK. Welcome and thanks to you both for agreeing to participate in this podcast. So just to start, necrotizing enterocolitis represents a devastating and potentially fatal diagnosis in the neonatal period. So can you just remind us of some of the features of this diagnosis and what is known of its etiology? So um, necrotizing enterocolitis is a disease that's, um, that mainly occurs in premature infants, particularly those that are born very prematurely. So um, because we're better at keeping alive, very premature babies, then one of the consequences of this might be that necrotizing enterocolitis is on the increase. Now what happens is a lot of these very premature babies may have um, a period of intolerance to, uh, to feeding enterally. And obviously we need to establish enteral feeds ultimately so they can be discharged from the neonatal unit. But many uh, premature infants have this sort of um, uh, period where they don't tolerate enteral feeds. And the, the worry there is they go on to this horrific disease, necrotizing enterocolitis. But part of the problem is recognizing the ones that just have a little bit of intolerance and the ones that then go on to um, this devastating problem. And what happens is really it's an inflammatory condition of the gut that leads to um, very extensive necrosis of the, of the intestine and perforation of the intestine. And um, if, if these infants go on to have a, uh, a gut perforation, then they fairly urgently need some form of surgery. Unfortunately for its etiology, we don't know completely how it happens. We know that some of the features... Uh, are immaturity of the gut, so from uh, premature infants. And we know as well that some things are protective, like breast milk um, is very protective uh, to prevent it happening. But there's certainly an inflammatory condition. Um, there's certainly a bacterial component, although it's not an infective disease. So there's a lot of interest in probiotics to try to uh, prevent the disease by altering the balance of the gut flora. But it, in some ways, it's still a, the, the, eti the precise etiology is, is actually still a bit of a mystery. And, and that obviously um, means that it's difficult to design uh, precise therapies for that. So what's the currently available treatment for this disease? Well, there's, there's not really any specific treatments for the disease. Uh, currently, the treatments are available are supportive treatment. So um, if these infants go on to uh, have a gut perforation, then they need surgery fairly urgently to take out the necrotic portion of the gut 
and also to um, uh, um, to to make good any anastomosis and any other damage. Um, and obviously, those infants may well be very sick, so they may be, well be on inotropic support or on a ventilator. So, so the treatments that are available are really supportive treatments to keep as many keep those organs functioning as well as we can while surgery is performed um, in these very vulnerable infants. Remember that these infants may be uh, may well be less than a kilo in weight. So performing major gastrointestinal surgery is is not an undertaking you you um, you want to do lightly. So your paper investigates the use of stem cells as a therapeutic modality for this disease. Where did this idea come from and what's the main hypothesis of the paper? Well, this idea came from the observation uh, uh, from others and us that when we use stem cells in a uh, uh, disease or damaged tissue, the stem cells not act only by uh, regenerating directly the tissue where we are injecting to, but also by boosting residence stem cells that can therefore repair the damage or uh, the damaged tissue. Uh, so the hypothesis was that in a situation where, uh, like in necrotizing enterocolitis, there's uh, the uh, intestine can be damaged, uh, uh, we could uh, inject the uh, stem cells. Uh, and they will help uh, both uh, by direct regeneration and uh, by boosting stem cells which are resident in the intestine. Uh, we, at that point, uh, uh, we had described uh, stem cells derived from the amniotic fluid and we know now that uh, these cells uh, are sort of in between between the adult and the um, uh, embryonic stem cells, and so they, for that, therefore, we, they may be useful for um, uh, uh, for repairing the tissue, both by direct differentiation and uh, by paracrine action. So now let's consider the methods you used. You assessed the use of these stem cells in a preclinical model of necrotizing enterocolitis. Can you tell us more about this and also the origin of the cells used as treatment? Yeah, so we are very lucky in necrotizing enterocolitis because uh, since the mid-70s, uh, there's a, a model described in the path breaths which essentially recapitulates uh, the type of injuries that the premature baby undergo and then develop NEC. As we were saying before, there's no uh, precise cause of this disease, so there's a uh, multiple factors uh, which act towards the disease. So this, in this animal model, uh, which is delivered prematurely and is, uh, uh, is uh, gavage feed with formula feeds because the breastfeeding is protective, is uh, there's a disease developing the intestine, which then become a multi-organ uh, failure um, uh, in the PAP rats. And the features of these disease developing uh, rats uh, are in the intestine, very similar to the one we observe in the human intestine. And uh, so we, we use uh, this model, which allow us uh, to uh, study in the short term. Unfortunately, this is not a model that will survive long. Uh, 
but allow us to assess in the short term the action of the cells. Um, the, the cells where we use uh, are cells derived from the amniotic fluid, and uh, uh, we have used those cells because uh, we know they are particularly plastic, and so therefore we hope that by using those cells, uh, they could both contribute to regeneration process and that could activate the cells present in the intestine. So how and when in the disease evolution were the cells administered and what control groups did you include? Well, precisely where in the disease evolution is, is a bit of an unknown question and that's one of the problems of this particular animal model that we use. Because these are pup rats um, in the first couple of days of life, um, we don't actually have any way of imaging the gut um, in vivo of these animals at the moment. So we can't tell whether we're administering the cells to animals that have already got the disease established or whether um, we're, they, these cells are acting actually as a prevention. Anyway, we administer the cells in the first, um, in the first couple of days of life which is also when we're establishing the disease model. Now, regarding the control groups, our main control group is, is simply a, a vehicle control, which is um, the cells are administered in phosphate-buffered saline. So the main control group is a phosphate-buffered saline uh, of same volume of the, uh, of the cells. However, in addition to that, we also used various other cell types as, uh, as controls. So including uh, mesenchymal stem cells uh, and also um, uh, muscle uh, cells uh, as our control groups. So you find that amniotic fluid stem cells led to improved survival, improved clinical disease scores, radiological parameters and gut function. Can you tell us more about this? So this is one of the things that we actually did uh, rather carefully. So um, it's very easy, I think, to if you administer a therapy to a, a rat to or, or or indeed any other rodent to be optimistic that what you've what you've done uh, is going to improve uh, their status. So we were quite rigorous about when we did this. Um, uh, we we developed a clinical scoring system for for the for the pup rats. And we also made sure that, that was always scored blinded to uh, the um, to what they'd received, so that um, so that we could truly say that we weren't being biased in the in the observations of these animals. So we first of all looked really at the behaviour of the rats. So pup rats tend to huddle together uh, to maintain warmth. And when the rats get, uh, sick, one of the first things you notice is they're all spread around the cage because they're less mobile. Um, you also notice, uh, the, the abdomens become, uh, slightly discolored and there's, there's kind of subtle signs, but using a scoring system, we can pick up on those. Then, um, after a certain point when the animals, uh, uh, are so sick that it's not ethical to keep them alive, then we sacrifice the animals um, and have a look at the macroscopic appearance of the intestine, which we also score blindly. Uh, then we uh, obviously uh, do H&E staining and look at the microscopic appearance of the intestine, also score blindly. And then 
Um, what we've also done as well in a limited number of animals is we've uh, actually done MRI of the animals after sacrifice. Uh, so just to emphasize, this isn't an in vivo test. This is um, looking at micro, um, micro um, MRI um, showing fluid accumulation and, and distension of the bowel loops in these animals. And from a functional point of view, we've done uh, what we think are, are similar sorts of tests to those that you might like to perform on premature infants with the disease. So, for instance, we've looked at intestinal permeability using uh, a lactulose and mannitol test uh, in the same way that people would do clinically. And we've also looked at gut motility using carmine red dye. So you administer calming red to the animals, and then uh, after a, a period of time, then you see how much of the gut is actually stained red, which gives you a, a simple measure of, uh, of motility. So you found that treatment with amniotic stem cells led to improvement of all these parameters. What were the main effects that you observed? So the main effect we observed was, uh, was improved survival, which was quite dramatic and very consistent. Um, and that uh, was highly statistically significant. Uh, as I say, it was very reproducible and is, is really, as far as I know, it's one of, the first, um, uh, one of the first therapeutic methods in this animal model that's actually shown improved survival. Other groups have shown that by administration of maybe um, uh, different immunomodulatory agents, they can improve some uh, histological parameters, but none of them have really shown an, in, uh, an improved survival. So we think that's really um, a, major, um, a major thing that we've advanced onwards here. Um, and that's all gone in parallel with the improved uh, clinical state and the macroscopic and microscopic changes that we've observed. So once you'd established therapeutic efficacy, you investigated the mechanism um, by which this treatment attenuated the disease activity. So can you explain your main findings of this to us? Yes, this came also as a bit of a surprise to us uh, because uh, uh, the macroscopic finding uh, like survival, gut function, and also the main histological finding uh, uh, didn't associate to the fact that uh, the cell homing uh, was particularly good. So we observed that by injecting these cells in the peritoneal cavity, which uh, to us is very relevant because we always focus on translational uh, uh, medicine, so on trying to then translate these data to patient and it would be much easier to do a localized uh, therapeutic approach than do a systemic. So therefore, in these uh, PAPs, uh, we have uh, approached uh, uh, the, 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 the therapeutic approach was always by injecting the cells in the prisoner cavity. But we observed that by injecting the cells, only a few fraction uh, of the cells were actually able to home in the intestine and despite that, there was a uh, very much uh, a, a therapeutic efficiency. Uh, so the main finding was that uh, this was maybe due to more of a paracrine action of the cells uh, which were boosting 
stem cells which were resident in the intestine. The clinical improvement was also seen with conditioned media suggesting the effect is mediated through secreted factors. Can you tell us more about this? Indeed, uh, this uh, goes uh, very well together with the fact that only few cells that engrafted in the damaged intestine could actually boost uh, the recovery of the intestine. We found that uh, if we injected uh, just the media that was conditioned by the cells in vitro, we could obtain a similar effect in survival. So that, uh, that uh, further remark, uh, the fact that the cells were acting to a, through a paracrine uh, way. You then assessed whether these amniotic fluid stem cells were acting via COX-2 dependent mechanism. Can you explain why you targeted this pathway? When we found that these cells were acting through a paracrine mechanism, we asked ourselves which pathway could they interfere with uh, and uh, allowing the recovery of the bowel. And there's a, a very nice and precise mechanism which has been described before by Stappenberg and, and collaborators, which look at the mechanism why uh, COX-2 positive cells, which are normally present in the axis of the villi, can migrate under the crypt of the villi, boosting proliferation of the epithelial cells uh, and uh, uh, um, somehow diminishing the apoptosis. And in fact, uh, uh, on microarray study, it was revealed to us that uh, this was exactly what was happening in, in the intestine of the animals injected with the cells. So we could see that there was uh, more proliferation at the epithelial level, less apoptosis, and there was also a diminishing of or the inflammation in the intestine. Therefore, we uh, further investigate that mechanism and we try to interfere with this pathway. So we use uh, inhibitor of the COX-2 pathway or the COX-1 uh, pathway, and we investigate if the mechanism of action was completely abolished. Indeed, uh, when we use the COX-2 inhibitor, we did not see any more that improvement in survival, which was remarkable when we used the cells. Further remarking the fact that probably this is the pathway or the main pathway of, through which the cells are acting in the intestine. So you mentioned that you compared mesenchymal stem cells to the amniotic fluid stem cells. And the mesenchymal stem cells didn't confer the benefit that you saw with the cells derived from the amniotic fluid, despite evidence that they're efficacious in other GI pathologies, such as inflammatory bowel disease. So why do you think this occurred? Well, this was a surprise to us as well, because there are uh, data, um, uh, not only that uh, mesenchymal stem cells are uh, by viable and useful for other inflammatory bowel disease, but there are also data of other animal models in which uh, there's no much of a difference between the uh, results obtained with amniotic fluid cells or mesenchymal stem cells derived, for example, from bone marrow. So um, we uh, hypothesized that uh, probably the peculiar uh, mechanism of action of the uh, COX-2 pathway 
which is uh, relevant probably not only to treat uh, the disease, but is also uh, important in the genesis of the NEC, maybe not the mechanism involved in other inflammatory bowel disease. And more research is uh, uh, going on exactly to address this topic in the laboratory. So what is the next step for this research? What do you feel are the key outstanding questions that need further assessment? Well, there, there are two directions. We believe that these findings may help us understanding the mechanism uh, uh, through which the disease develops. And this is one area in which uh, uh, we are very focused in the lab. And the other area, obviously, is to translate this into patients as soon as possible. With a mortality of 30% in this disease in the premature baby, there's really not much else that we can do at the moment. And surgery is only uh, palliative or removal of the necrotic tissue. So in order to do that, uh, we are preparing a, a, a cell bank uh, using amniotic fluids themselves. And, uh, and the other um, uh, hypothesis that we are pursuing at the moment is that eventually we can use a product of these cells without using the cells uh, into the patient. So if we prove that uh, using uh, media condition by these cells, uh, we may have a similar effect, uh, then obviously this makes it all much easier for translation into patients. Well, this certainly represents an exciting and potentially novel treatment for necrotizing enterocolitis, as you say, and has the potential to exert a huge clinical impact. So when will we see this in clinical practice? Well, as, uh, as Paolo has just said, then uh, one of the next steps is to, to generate the, the, um, uh, the human cells that will be able to, to, um, to test the effect in, um, in newborn infants. And that obviously we need uh, uh, GMP grade cells, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so part of the problem with this, uh, with this disease, necrotizing enterocolitis, is that um, is working out exactly which infants are the, uh, is the right stage of the disease to target. Um, from an ethical point of view, you might take, um, take the point of view that actually you want to target those infants that are, are really extremely sick indeed. Because we, we, you know, we haven't tested these types of cells um, in human infants before. However, actually, they may not be the infants that may they most benefit from the cells. The, the infants that might most benefit from the cells might be earlier on in the disease before it gets established. So there's, there's some... Um, some really design questions about uh, an early stage clinical trial here that we're, we're starting to come to grips with those questions. So we're, we're moving onwards. Um, uh, and so hopefully within the next couple of years, we'll be able to try out our first uh, pilot study, which would necessarily be a feasibility safety study, and then to move on. Obviously, it's a slight it's slightly different doing a cell-based therapy, um, um, but obviously it has parallels with, uh, with uh, pharmacological therapy in terms of phase one, phase two, et cetera, et cetera. However, as, as my colleague Paolo's just said, if we can identify the, 
um, the factors produced by the conditioned medium, maybe it will end up being a, a pharmacological therapy rather than a cell-based therapy. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'd just like to thank Dr. Paolo Decopi and Dr. Simon Eaton for joining me today for the discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.